This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Welcome to the latest Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to be dissecting the Grand Premio Michelin de la Republica Argentina. My name is Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by David Emmett and Neil Morrison. It's very late for us, Dave. Um, we're also pre- preparing the trip to um, Austin, of course, this week. So it'd be great to finally get to a MotoGP race, um, a positive uh, COVID test, basically counting me out of Qatar. So I've been um, biding my time since then. And then you're on an early flight tomorrow, making your way to the United States, whereas Neil, you're already halfway there in Buenos Aires. So Dave, are you all packed? Uh, all packed except for the podcasting gear. <laughs> okay well i'm glad you didn't pack that before you started doing the podcast uh, this evening and neil how you... it, it seemed like a good idea not to uh not to not to do that to sort of keep it out because otherwise it might have been a bit tricky neil i really want to know if you arrived to buenos aires okay or if there was a delay on your flight or whether your suitcase is currently you know uh, 36 hours delayed uh, what's the situation well i'd just like to correct you first of all you said i'm halfway to texas already in buenos aires i think i'm one way and a half there because it didn't seem like halfway when I was coming to Argentina. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, uh, I, I think I've arrived in Buenos Aires without any drama. I'm, I'm kind of touching wood at the moment because things have gone rather smoothly today. And, um, that is making me worried because it's not normally like that, but yeah, so far so good. I've got my suitcase, everything's intact. So, uh, speaking of um, uh, making it to places with no drama, I would just like to note that as we record uh, this, I actually checked and there is an Atlas Air 747 on the tarmac at Tucumán Airport currently being loaded. So um, it, it looks like there might be motorbikes in Austin next week. Fingers crossed. The flight still needs to get there. But anyway, welcome to the podcast for this week. Uh, like I mentioned, we are going to be talking about round three of 2022 MotoGP, right before round four, of course, in the USA. Uh, the Paddock Pass podcast is presented by Rental Street Components. There's over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. So it's not just a company about handlebars. There's loads there to get into. Have a look around. You own a street bike, not just off-road. Uh, there's literally tons of stuff in the catalog to check out and uh, we're also supported thanks to fly racing they've got a, a comprehensive street collection of gear uh, we've got some of the stuff already we're testing it uh, david there is modeling the um the hoodie for those who are watching the video on youtube thanks dave uh yeah, very you comfy br- you need to brush up on the uh the catwalk skills i think <laughs> Anyway, listen, uh, much ado about nothing. What was your moment of this Grand Prix? Because there's enough to talk about. Of course, you know, a certain black motorcycle took the win. Uh, A rider who polarizes opinions in terms of whether he's any good or not. We've certainly talked about Alessia Spargaro's credentials as a a Grand Prix winner, a potential Grand Prix winner on this podcast over the last year or two. So uh, let's get into it. First of all, Uh, Neil, what was your kind of big takeaway from this race? Uh, my moment of the weekend ad was uh, was the clash in Moto2 between Celestino Vietti and uh, Fermin Aldeguer. I think that was probably the pivotal moment in that race and uh, probably the most disappointing one because uh, as much as I like Vietti, I was really intrigued to see just how far uh, Fermin could take it. I mean, he took his first pole position in Moto2 on Saturday, becoming the youngest rider in history by over a year to take uh, pole in Grand Prix Racing's intermediate category. And uh, he looked like he was going to go the distance in the race as well. And I feel that that 
unfortunate clash coming out of turn 13 deprived of deprived us of, of what might have been a, a fascinating battle between the two because certainly earlier in the day in the warm-up session those were the two guys that looked like they were the, the pick of the field Vietti and Aldeguer so I think um, we can certainly say that that was uh, the official arrival of Fermin and I think there's going to be lots more performances like that to come. Neil you've seen a lot of Moda 2 over the last couple of years I think you know I can sum up uh, or I can make a question on behalf of a lot of people listening to this podcast, but who on earth is Fermin and where did he come from? <laughs> Fermin Altiguer is from Murcia, uh, the same region as Pedro Acosta in Spain, uh, the south uh, east of Spain. Um, so whatever is in the water or has been in the water there uh, for the past 17 years, um, well, can they maybe ship that over to Northern Ireland or, or maybe even Barcelona um, and, and maybe put it on my on my dinner table um yes he's a he's a young kid he's the reigning european uh, moto 2 uh, champion um he won nine out of 11 races in that class last year and then uh, performed in the moto e world cup last year i think scored a pole position um had a couple of decent results as a 16 year old uh, also had a couple of replacement rides in the moto 2 world championship last year and was seriously impressive i think he finished in the top 10 in his very first World Championship appearance at Mugello last year, and he had just turned 16. So, um, I mean, the kid looks like he really is something very special indeed. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he wasn't just faster than people in qualifying. He was, you know, considerably faster. So I think he's going to be a name that we'll, we'll be talking about a lot in the future. It's not just Pedro Acosta as the, the kind of the young rookie to, to look out for in the class. Uh, I think Anna Carrasco is from Mercia as well. So, uh, yeah, there, there's a fair number of people sort of coming out of there now. Um, a, a question. Do we think um, Vietti deserved a penalty? I mean, do you think it was just a race incident or was it worse than it looked? Uh, for me, I have to agree with um, Remy Gardner's words in his debrief uh, when he said that, um, you know, I think Vietti has to have a look. At the very least, you know, he's gone slightly offline and, and he's veering back onto a, a certain racing line. And he has to really have a little bit of awareness of, you know, who's around him, how close the others are. I don't think it's worthy of a penalty, but I think it's definitely worthy of a slap wrist uh, or at least a question, uh, perhaps a small interrogation as to what his intentions were. Um, it was a pretty scary crash. I mean, it was a very kind of um, dramatic, I guess you can say, quite a, a couple of spirals there for Fermin. But um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was a close incident. They need mirrors on these bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I think a penalty would maybe be harsh, but um, you know, it's one of those one of those corners, isn't it? In in at turn thirteen in, in Termas, where if you do go wide and you try and cut back onto the line, um, there is a chance that someone close behind might be right there. Um, I think we saw that in the Moto Three class as well with uh, with Masia and Domino. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think it would be a little harsh for for Vietti. I mean, yeah, okay, he could have maybe looked over his shoulder, but we're talking about split seconds here. Um, so. I think, yeah, slap wrist perhaps, or maybe a bit of a talking to, but penalty, I'm not so sure. My moment of the weekend was um, that quite sumptuous move in a pulsating Moto3 race right at the end by Sergio Garcia, because that, uh, I mean, to even have Dennis Foggia, you know, congratulating him, giving him props, you know, a couple of meters beyond the finish line, um, really pretty much said it all. I think he measured that move to perfection. And I mean, there was barely centimeters or inches in it. 
Uh, it was incredibly tight, but just just the way he executed that, and you know, found the room on the inside of the Honda and gave the the you know the gas gas rider victory was um, was something pretty special. And probably also you know credit to Yumi Sasaki as well for for making a similar kind of maneuver and getting that third step on the podium. So that that's what stood out for me. Um, any thoughts on that move, Dave? Before you tell us what what was your main pick? I actually, I mean, it was that sort of last quarter. There was a couple of really just outstanding moves there, uh, um, uh, there as well. There was um, in Moto Two as well. I think uh, Ayugura on Aaron Canet, um, a perfect brake check, just absolutely or not brake check, a perfect block pass. You know, getting through, sticking his bike right in front of. Um, of Kanet stopping him, Kanet from you know giving Kanet nowhere to go except sort of to, to, to ease off and, and let him pass. And um, yeah, I mean Garcia, I really thought that Garcia had lost that, um, uh, uh, had lost that, and to get through to make that pass was just exceptional. It was. Um, it was great to see, you know, we had, it, it was an interesting Moto3 race. It wasn't just sort of all go mental to the last lap and then um, uh, it's the the, 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 the the sort of, you know, the, the biggest idiot out of the uh, out of the last corner who wins. Um, and the Moto2 race was pretty good as well. So, yeah, all round, um, I think a, a good weekend. I think one of the really impressive things about Garcia's move was Foggia had shown himself to be absolutely brilliant into that breaking zone throughout the race obviously he came through from um bad qualifying didn't make such great progress at the start of the race but then came through the field and put a couple of great moves on uh, i think he did a two and one into turn 13 to sit second midway through the race then he actually did garcia uh on the penultimate lap at that very point so garcia kind of returning the favor was basically um you know smashing foggia with uh with the with his own fist so i mean it was a, it was a wonderful last lap performance and um yeah i think it's a, a very valid moment of the weekend for you ad well i mean you know speaking of idiots neil um your tip for the moto three world <laughs> champion uh you know andrea Migno didn't cover himself in glory and, and moto three generally i mean it was it was a great race uh, you had to feel sorry for his anchor Guevara as well for his mechanical because he was looking incredibly strong and in fact you tipped him you know pre-race neil for victory so maybe the teenager will get a second bite of the cherry in Austin, where of course he took his first win last year. Exactly. Yeah. No. I think uh, I think Izan was was Rob, but uh, you know, Moto three. I was a little scared that uh, you know Foggia might just clear off and win this year by a canter, and he might still do that. But um, I think the, the the first three races we've certainly seen that Guevara, um, Garcia, and maybe Sasaki. Are, are guys that can kind of live with him in terms of outright speed. So I think, um, yeah, there's a there's a promising kind of, oh, there's promising signs that we might have a really, really good uh, title fight in Moto3 this year. Just to come back to the Andrea Minia moment, you know, with Jaume Masio, why why was he so enraged? I mean, surely he was the one in the wrong. He ended Jaume Masia's race. He was running wide and basically used Masia as like a bumper. Um, I, I can't understand why there was all the gesture and histronics, especially walking in the pit lane. I was trying to work out whether he was actually trying to apologize or he wanted to remonstrate even further. What was the kind of vibe on the ground now? Uh, I think he wanted to maybe remonstrate even further um, just uh, because he, he gave him a, a very sarcastic wave when Massey was coming into the coming into the pit lane to retire from the race. And then he went and hung outside 
um, the garage and it looked as though Akiyayo was acting as mediator or maybe he was acting as a kind of uh, Bouncer. A, a part-time yeah part-time heavy uh, <laughs> that is also possible um, but yeah I mean he maybe was thinking the same thing that Aldeguer would have thought which was why did you you know why weren't you aware that I was there maybe you should have lifted up and, and give me a bit more space but um, yeah the the 2022 Moto3 World Champion will certainly be able to say that he's faced a, a fair bit of adversity in the first couple of races of the year. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see you're still sticking to your guns now. I'll have to, uh, <laughs> we won't remind you any more of that. I mean, that was a very bold prediction in the first Grand Prix of the year, and I'm sorry for laying on your plate. We'll, we'll, we'll make it stretch to about Valencia, and then we'll let it drop. Dave, before we move on to you know the kind of talking points, tell us about what was your moment of the Argentine Grand Prix. My moment of the Argentine Grand Prix was uh, lap 21, turn five in the MotoGP race when Alessia Spargaro finally managed to get past uh, Jorge Martin and make it stick because he'd done it, what, two or three times before. And every time he got past, he kept on running wide and, and Martin was back again. And you really thought, you know, is he going to be able to do this? Also, because we've always, always questioned, um, you know, did Aleish have it in him? Did he have the the coolness and the calmness to be able to sort of, you know, keep it together? Uh, and Aleish passing Jorge Martín and then running wide and giving up the position seemed like such an Aleish thing to do. Um, so for him to actually make it stick, and it was a great pass, um, pulled it right back when he needed to, uh, left um, uh, Martin nowhere to go. Because the other thing was, it was really clear that Aleish was much faster than, uh, or well, not much faster, but he was clearly faster than Martin. Um, when he did lose ground, you know, within a lap, he was back on uh, uh, on Martin's tail. So uh, it was it was outstanding. At that point, once he got past once he'd made that pass, then you knew, you know, that was it. That was game over. Even though Martin actually put up a decent fight, um, yeah, or uh, Alice just had the 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 had the better of that uh, of that argument. I think. Yeah, good shout, Dave. I mean, there was a moment as well, well, several moments when it looked like Alesh was really kind of teetering on the limit. I mean, there was a couple of times when he outbraked himself, and you did wonder whether the nerves were coming into play. Um, you know, he could sense after Prilia's first pole position, you know, in the four-stroke era, um, you know, that they were on the edge of something special. And it did look like a, a long, long race, you know, 25 laps for him, but he, he made it count. Um, yeah, the, the, the other thing is he had that look about him. Um, sometimes you'll see a rider and, they, and they, they have a certain swagger, a certain – they exude this, like, calmness. Uh, that you think, okay, we've got it all under control, and um, he, he he just looked like he, you know, there was no doubt in his own mind that it was going to happen, that that he had it all under under control, and so like for him to pull that off, I think was fantastic. Uh, it's at this point where I feel we owe perhaps Miguel Oliveira a slight apology because for round two in Indonesia, we were talking more about the Grand Prix and and the the circumstances of, you know, MotoGP's first visit to Lombok rather than Oliveira's, you know, feet in actually winning the bloody thing. So on this occasion, you know, I'm going to come straight to Neil because we've organized our talking points really before we've entered this call and this podcast. And Neil, you really wanted to talk about, you know, Aprilia. And there was there was several kind of little storylines coming up again from the race because MotoGP has been incredibly generous early on 
this year. But you know, undoubtedly, Alesh, you know, and that team, that manufacturer, that motorcycle is um, by far and away the headline grabber. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a pretty insane start to the year, if you think about it. I mean, um, not only have the results been crazy, but two of the three races we've had so far have, in one way or another, been under threat from even taking place at one point uh, during the respective weekends. Um, and for that alone, you know, it's, it's kind of been a bit weird and a bit wild um, and a bit wonderful. But yeah, nine different podium finishers in, in three races. Um, I don't think that that has happened for a long, long time. Um, also, you know, pretty winning, like how about this first stat, um, courtesy of uh, official statistician Thomas Morsellino. I think it's the first time that three different European manufacturers have won the first three races of a Premier Class campaign since 1952. And that's back when the, the, the European manufacturers were AJS, Norton and Jolera. So <laughs> I mean, this this is not something that's quite that uh, is quite so normal. This is uh, pretty pretty rare. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if if you do if you had to choose one one rider that's been there or thereabouts in uh, in all three races, um, you know, Aleish and Aprilia have, have have been those guys. Um, he just missed out in the podium in Qatar. I think had it not rained in Lombok, um, the Aprilia guys were pretty confident that he would have been pushing for the podium there as well. Um, and it was just, it was just really interesting how the weekend transpired and how it developed because he was, I mean, I think maybe him and Fabio Quattararo were the the guys in in free practice on Saturday that had the the, the kind of rhythm on used rubber, um, and. Uh, you know, with Fabio qualifying back in sixth, it was suddenly like, oh, well, that's not going to be straightforward for him. Um, and suddenly Aleish has this kind of two-row advantage over the guy that's uh, that, that maybe has a, a, as good a pace as him. And, uh, you know, Fabio ran into several issues, which we'll probably come on to a wee bit later. But it was just, uh, it was impressive because I, I can't imagine that was easy for someone like Aleish going into his 200th Premier Class Grand Prix, knowing that this was probably going to be his best chance ever and if he kind of blew it, then it might be one of those Colin Edwards at Assen situations where, you know, people will just forever be talking about that was his chance and he didn't take <laughs> it, you know. So um, I think the fact that he, he managed to get the job done and, and did it, you know, with uh, as Dave just mentioned, um, so stylishly and, and kind of calmly. I, I, I was waiting for him to make a mistake in the last couple of laps, I must say. But um, he, he rode pretty, pretty well, pretty beautifully. So, um, you know, chapeau to Alish and chapeau to Aprilia because they've built a what was a good package last year. They have managed to improve it pretty much in most areas, it seems. Um, it's been weird. All the three races we've had have been very, very strange in different ways because of the conditions, because of the track surfaces. Um, maybe this isn't a great indication of how the, the eventual championship will play out, but I think, you know, Alish is certainly on well on course for maybe his best ever season, maybe a top six in the championship, which I still think would be a phenomenal achievement for a factory like Aprilia. Uh, yeah, this whole race was just an absolute stats bonanza. Um, uh, uh, Swinksy on Twitter, who I think works for uh, Motor Ciclismo, the Spanish uh, magazine, um, had some just outstanding stats. Like with Aleish's win... That means that every all 24 riders on the grid have at least one Grand Prix victory to their name, or they have at least one Grand Prix victory, a pole, and a race fastest lap. So that's just it's just an astonishing 
it shows you the level that we're the, uh, the level of riders in in the class, and it means that all six uh, Grand Prix manufacturers have wins now. Um, it's also, I think, the fifth European. A race winner in a row, a, a bike. So the the, the fifth bike, uh, European manufacturer in a row to to win a race. Uh, or well, no, sorry, that's not said very well. Let's turn it around. Uh, this is the fifth race, <laughs> the, the the fifth race in a row that a European manufacturer has won, which again, completely unexpected. Not at all what um uh, what we've had uh, previously. It, it's just been it's, it's been remarkable. Yeah, and I think I said earlier the nine different podium finishes in the first three races. Uh, that's been done twice before. The last time was 1952. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, as you say, Dave, just uh, pretty unprecedented times. Um, so it's it's kind of, it's difficult in some ways to know how to make sense of this. But um, I think from the first three races, we can definitely say with, with some certainty that Aprilia has, has kind of arrived in a certain sense. And maybe we won't see this uh, every weekend. Um, but I spoke to Massimo Ravolo, the company CEO, after the race had finished and he said you know looking forward i think the words he used were we want to be the little bastard of the clan that uh, <laughs> is kind of annoying annoying the other manufacturers and maybe popping up with you know on special circuits or, or, or circuits particularly suited to the bike and to a leash maybe maybe pushing for the win again this year you know and you'd have to say that's not beyond the reach what's um do we think that Alesh might have shot his bolt I mean, he's achieved that victory. You know, he's got sort of, like we said this on the, the Paddock Pass podcast note show on Sunday, Dave, the monkey's off the back. Um, you know, I've been, I wouldn't say critical, but I've, I've pointed the finger at him in the past and said he's had good support, good equipment, you know, and hasn't really backed up what can sometimes be a very vocal opinion on the sport and his rivals and, and the way racing is going, but he doesn't quite have the CV to, you know, to have that launch pad um, or that soapbox rather. But, you know, can we see him winning more races now? Or, I mean, if you listen to his words in the post-race press conference, he's very much a man that's not driven by results. He's not a, you know, he's not sort of a Mark Marquez. He doesn't have that kind of insatiable appetite for victory. I mean, he says he has the dream life just racing in MotoGP. So he's not a man who lives and dies by, you know, uh, a result sheet on a Sunday night. So, you know, could this make him a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more confident, and then that all comes as a consequence? Or, you know, do you think, you know, he will always be there or thereabouts, just like normal? I mean, he's he's always been there or thereabouts, and he's, but he's, he really has needed the bike underneath him. I, I, I disagree that he's sort of like had decent or, you know, had good machinery. He's had decent machinery. He's had machinery which is almost there, but not quite. Um, uh, you know, he, he's not going to be sort of transformed into the kind of voracious winner like Mark Marquez, where he's suddenly winning everything. Um, but he is clearly he's clearly talented. He's capable of winning. I mean, like this, there are no asterisks about this about this win. I mean, the only the only asterisk you could place on it is Mark Marquez wasn't there. But even if Mark Marquez had been there absolutely no certainty that he would have won in Argentina either um so there's there's no question marks about this win this was uh, dry weather good track conditions uh, everyone there full strength um it was you know it was a proper race Aleix deserved this he did the work um uh, it, the, the bike gave him what he needed and he had what he, you know, he, he rode to, to to what he needed. But I do think he was really interesting in the in the press conference talking about 
um, uh, you know, the, the role of family and uh, that he didn't need to do this. He didn't need to. He didn't feel the pressure of needing a win. Uh, his pressure was all from himself, from you know, wanting to live up to his own, to to, to live up to his own standards, to, to to achieve what he wanted to achieve. And I think that. Um, has taken some of the pressure off him and, and has allowed him to win. And maybe, you know, this win, it's not going to make him more likely to win, if you like. Uh, but I do think uh, I do think he will win at least another sort of, you know, as long as he's racing, he's capable of winning, you know, one, maybe two races uh, a, a season. Um, I don't think he's going to win a championship, but he can certainly, he can certainly be competitive. Sure. And certainly, you know, he, he can definitely be on the podium regularly uh, and, and win races from time to time. I think he maybe got a bit of an unfair rep because, okay, he had never won a Grand Prix and this year he was the only guy in the MotoGP class to have that unfortunate statistic next to his name but i mean you look at his career and it has been impressive like he has taken suzuki from newcomers into the class to podium contenders he's done the same with aprilia all the way from nothing to um race winners now leading the championship um tom O'Kane was his crew chief when he was uh, working uh, at Suzuki, Tom said that he was one of the more talented guys that he's worked with, and Tom's been around for quite a while. Um, and you just have to look at the guys that have been his teammate in Aprilia. I mean, like Sam Lowe's, Scott Redding, Stefan Bridle, Andrea Ignoni, Bradley Smith, Maverick Vinales. Maverick Vinales. We're not talking about slow riders here. Like each one of those guys has won. Okay, maybe not all of them have won Grand Prix, but, um, you know, there's a couple of guys that have won championships. There's a couple of guys that have won MotoGP races in that group. Um, and he has outclassed them all. You know, he's been the, he's been head and shoulders above each one of those teammates whenever they've come to Aprilia. Um, and, you know, I, I thought Sunday was interesting again because previously when Aleish was in a, in a position where you thought, oh, wow. He might actually be able to win here. Like I'm thinking, for example, the first race of the year when he was with the forward Yamaha in 2014. Uh, he had a great preseason and he went into Qatar maybe as one of the favorites to win. And then he messed up qualifying and almost his nerves got the better of him. And then when he was on pole at uh, Barcelona with the Suzuki, you thought, oh, wow, maybe this could be the thing. And, you know, it just didn't work out. He, he had a sort of average result um, on that occasion. But, you know, I think how he handled it just showed how far he has come since then as a rider and kind of as a competitor that uh, he was able to take that pressure and perform despite that, despite this, the spotlight being very much on him. So, um, yeah, fair play. Yeah, I think he, he just, the fact that he hasn't really come that close before, has he? I mean, like we said, there have been moments when he's looked likely, but there's never been like a really consistent hard push for a win. And also he, he always has struggled to shirk that B-rider tag. Uh, whether it was Vinales or Iannone, it was always a feeling that he was there to develop the bike or to, to to mold the team together or, you know, and that's also something of great credit to him that the Aprilia now is in a position where it's won a Grand Prix. Um, it can attract a rider of somebody like Vinales' undoubted potential. Um, you know, he must take a lot of plaudits for that. But, uh, you know, I think that maybe the problem is as well that Alesh can be quite a divisive character. You know, he's uh, obviously very outspoken, like I mentioned, um, I think people either like him or they kind of treat him as a little bit of a, you know, um, somebody who shouts a lot and doesn't really back it up. And I think, you know, if you just look at the, you know, the MotoGP Amazon series, you know, he was picked as one of the lead kind of protagonists and keeps popping up throughout purely because he is so expressive. 
Um, you know, I mean, MotoGP does need characters like that. And of course, for journalists or for writers, he's great fodder for, you know, information or opinions. But I, it feels like at last, you know, he's kind of, to take a cliche, nailed the colors to the mast. He's justified his presence. And, you know, Neil, yeah, I mean, Dave, you mentioned the point about machinery, but he has been a factory rider for, what, almost a decade. So, you know, I think to get into that position, you either have to be shit hot at developing things behind the scenes or you bring the results, you know, I don't think you can really keep that position, keep those contracts, you know, without bringing like a, a package to the show. So, you know, he's, he's done it. I just wonder how much more we can see from him. Yeah, but I don't think he's, he's never had a, a complete package. He's always had to work on the package, you know, so he, he was with Suzuki when they first joined. Um, uh, he was brought to Aprilia to sort of, you know, move the project on into the next step um, uh, quite early on in the project because they only really, you know, they really started in 2015 um, with Marco Melandri, which was... Um, uh, hilarious. It was hilarious. It was hilarious for everyone <laughs> except for 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 Marco Melandri because it it was generally yeah exactly exactly. I I I honestly have this really sort of strong memory of um, Valencia the Valencia Test two thousand and fourteen. I think um, when we were. I mean the Valencia Test. Everyone is tired. Everyone is really fed up. No one wants to be there. Everyone wants to be at home. It's been a long season. It's been, you've had a full, you know, weekend of racing and then you've got the bloody test on Monday and Tuesday. And then um, uh, going down to see sort of Marco Melandri and just sort of going down where you could feel you, you just, the, the you could feel your 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 soul escaping your body because it was such a it was such a disastrous he was he it was like they were he was surrounded in this little black cloud of gloom and doom which he managed to exude and infect the rest of us with and you came away sort of um uh yeah you you came away semi suicidal every time you spoke to it and you thought well this is this is not really going to end very well because he'd been taken off of a, you know, basically a championship winning superbike um, and, and stuck in MotoGP. And the only reason he was there was because he had a contract to be racing and in, in, uh, he had a contract to be racing for Aprilia and Aprilia had decided to switch from uh, from World Supers to MotoGP. But um, yeah, it was, uh, th th like I say, it was, uh, it, it was quite funny and it didn't last and it didn't last very long. I think he, by mid-season, he was gone. He'd managed to get out of his contract and Stefan Bradle took over I think it's not very yes. memorable yes he did <laughs> <laughs> but just a, a quick one last quick point while we're we're on this this topic here I mean Dave made that point there I think there was a, a, a kind of a time in in MotoGP where you thought like what Aprilia have got the resources and there's clearly like some you know Romano Albesiano the, the technical guy is clearly a very capable uh, engineer, like a very capable, very smart guy. Um, but you just thought, what? There's something. It didn't always add up. It didn't always logically make sense what they were doing. Like the Melandry thing. That that's one instance. Um, you know, the treatment of Sam Lowe's that was not really. It wasn't nice and it wasn't professional. And um, it, it was just. I thought it was counterproductive to the whole operation. It just seemed. I Scott Redding as well. You know, it just. There were lots of examples through those years where you thought they haven't really got their house in order. But Alif said in, in 2018, the end of 2018, when they hired Rivola to be their CEO, CEO and that basically just allowed Albesiano to focus on the engineering side. And that seemed to have just 
really a pretty's just gone on an upward trajectory from then and i know 2020 was difficult but aside from the kind of 2020 season which was in part um influenced by you know the pandemic and, and kind of a freeze on, on aerodynamics and things like that it's largely been upwards and i think Ravola has to take a great amount of credit for that because he if you've watched the amazon series just how he kind of manages the leash how he got the the, the factory to come around and, and, and be warm and welcoming to Maverick Finales. You know, you can see he has a real impact on the the emotional and, and human side of the riders. Um so I think he's uh he's been very influential. Well up until Argentina, if you someone if someone said Aprilia to me in MotoGP, I always think of that cube motorcycle and how wonderful it looked and how poorly it worked. And of course how, you know, Colin Edwards turned it into a proper Texan barbecue. I think it was at the Saxon ring, wasn't it? It um, was, yeah, down the hill at the Saxon ring, just um uh, him Colin Edwards bailing out because the thing was very, very uh, on fire. Also, it made it made the most wonderful noise. It, it genuinely, it's the best sounding motorcycle. I mean, it sounded like it was trying to kill you, um, <laughs> and of course, it actually did. <laughs> well, you know, in the very rare, you know, uh, well moment, oh, I can say chance that Collins actually listens to this podcast we're not picking on him um you know by bringing up Aston and at the time that he almost fried his balls on the Aprilia <laughs> but uh yeah don't worry Colin we're heading to Texas so um we will happily buy you a beer for any kind of uh, defamatory comments that are popping up in this podcast we're going to get back to some more slander right after this ad break uh so stay with us Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. My talking point from the Grand Prix of Argentina, I've given up with the whole Grand Premio Michelin thing. Um, Red Bull, the Red Bull Grand Prix of the Americas, that's much easier to pronounce. So next week we'll be sorted on the podcast. But um, for me, I just want to ask you two, what is going on with MotoGP at the moment? It, I mean, it's madness. I mean, like we said, we've had three different winners, nine different riders on the podium. It's almost like the series has gone Amazon crazy. They've hired a writer, had a huge meeting and said, right, you're going to win. You're going to do this. You're going to, you know, it's... It's completely unscripted, but also scripted at the same time. I mean, we've had the night race and an unexpectedly gripping Qatar surface. Um, you know, we've gone to Lombok with all the drama surrounding that um, and ended up with actually quite a surprisingly grippy racetrack, a brand new one and a result that we weren't really expecting. And then, of course, there's the whole, uh, use that word again, drama in the build up to Argentina where we have the first two-day format for for motor gp at the moment um you know it's it's it, I, it's baffling i'm trying to find any kind of like strains of consistency and it's it's hard to really get much of a handle on motor gp at the moment and i actually went through the stats and looked it up because i think in argentina in the in the rider debris we started to hear the first comments of how uh, teams and riders are trying to get through this little phase and get back to europe where the championship starts proper and over the years, if you take the uh, Qatar, Argentina, Austin kind of stint that opens the world championship, so to speak, then the rider that's come back to Europe, usually at Jerez, to start the season on the European shores, 
um, the rider leading the championship there hasn't actually gone on to win the championship. Like in 2017, it was Valentino Rossi. 2018 and 2019, Andrea De Vizioso was leading the championship after these flyaways. Um, you have to go back to 2016 when Mark actually left Texas with the championship lead and then, you know, actually went on to have a good campaign. I mean, we still have, what, 450 points left to win and all the races to go. And the fact that Alessia Spargaro is winning the, the world championship uh, just also blows my mind as well. Um, um, it, it is chaos. And also, can I just point out that, you know, I feel some kind of spiritual connection to Alesh because he's obviously leading the rider standings and, and the fact that my team still remains high on the fantasy league, um, you know, is means that we have some kind of, uh, you know, just brotherly thing going on. So I'm right there with you, Alesh. Yeah, I've made the uh, brilliant move of um, uh, swapping out Juan Mir for Fabio Quartararo uh, on uh, on Saturday nights just before the uh, before the, the deadline. So that obviously worked out really, really well for me in the in fantasy. I haven't even looked just because um, uh, it was it was all a bit of a bad idea. Um, however. Uh, all this talk of chaos is nonsense. Um, <laughs> the other thing that we heard at, uh, at the debriefs, if you were listening to the riders carefully, is they were saying, "Yeah, I'm starting to get the fire. Uh, uh, I'm starting to get the feeling back." Pekka Banyaya afterwards said he had a really good race. Um, he completely messed up his Saturday. Um, he said he, got, he was he was angry and nervous and made too many mistakes and uh, just completely blew Saturday. Uh, had a terrible FP2, terrible qualifying. Um, they made a change to his bike. They softened it up so it was softer over the bumps. Uh, gave him more control uh, and he felt like he was in charge of the bike again. Uh, Juan Mir also said, um, I have, for the first time, I have some feeling with the bike. Um, he was confident. And he had, a, again, a really, really strong race, but they were starting from the third row. And so the, the third row, the, the Suzuki's, they can get on the podium from the third row, but really to win, they need to be on the second row. Um but the, what's happened is we had no testing. What's happened is basically we've had a a day and a half of preseason testing in 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 2022. Um, we had one dry day at Sepang, and then sort of half a day before it started raining in Sepang, and then they went to Mandalika, and the first day was a complete sort of disaster because the track was filthy, um, and then they were all sort of messing around trying to figure out whether they were um you know, there was lots and lots of testing going on they went to Qatar a Qatar Pekka was saying look I just want to ride the bike just give me the bike to ride they were they were testing new parts all the way through FP3 um and you you see it uh, you see it also on the bike uh, at Qatar Ducati were using their front ride height device. It's been dumped. It's not there anymore because they cut. They haven't been able to test it to get it right, to get it to work properly. Um, they've moved away from this. And so what you're starting to see is really the championship crystallizing. And I think this is, it, it's not really a surprise that the, that the championship uh, or that the leader at uh, after the sort of, you know, the, the opening flyaways, the, 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 the rider who leads going into Jerez, 
that they don't go on to win the championship because those first few races, for a start, it's weird tracks. And then secondly, um, everyone is still working, you know, looking for a base setting. They can't ride the bike because they're still not sure of the bike that they're riding. Uh, and I think now, I think actually Argentina was the place where they found the bike, that there's been a number of people who found a, a, a base setting. Now that they've got the base setting, they can be competitive. And I think we're going to start to see a much more consistent picture from here going forward. I think uh, MotoGP at the moment, MotoGP without Marc Marquez, doesn't have a clear figure that can win 10 races in a year or 12 races in a year. Um, so I think Marquez's absence from round two and three has had uh, a slight impact on some of the results. Uh, I also think we've had three of the most random settings for Grand Prix in that, you know, Qatar, you've basically got one free practice session at night or at dusk, whenever the race is going to be, um, before you, you're into free practice, well, two, I guess, okay, FP2 and FP4, before you're into qualifying. Um, so it's always quite difficult to understand what's going on there, especially without uh, testing at the track prior to that. We've spoken about Indonesia and Michelin's uh, tire allocation designed from what four years ago uh, I mean that just threw everyone off I spoke to Joan Mayer's crew chief Frankie Carchetti in Argentina and he said had it not rained he was sure that Joan would have finished last like <laughs> last like the 2020 world champion that's the kind of effect that this tire had on the field like one of the strongest guys one of the fastest guys finishing at the back so you know the results there are crazy and and, and you can't read too much into them there and then you know also the the, the sort of the randomness of this weekend i mean um you know dave said that he felt that a, a sort of semblance of normality was was coming to the fore on sunday and I, I guess that was true but um you know even then the guys only had um one day of free practice basically before they were going into race day and that in itself is pretty weird and pretty unique um yeah you you're not having the usual sort of time and pacing over a weekend to get everything right and to get everything up to speed like if we had a normal race weekend in argentina would alation probably have one on sunday maybe the suzukis would have got a little bit their thing together Ducati certainly wouldn't have been as lost as they were prior to qualifying had they had three full free practice sessions leading up to qualifying or four in fact sorry um so yeah i think um i i kind of generally I agree with Dave um, that um, things are starting to take shape a little bit, but we've also had to take into fact that the three rounds that we've had have been just mental. Well, but exactly that. I mean, circumstances have been so strange. But then if you look at, you know, we've got Austin coming up. Austin is, again, it's a bit of a strange track um, and it's been resurfaced as well, which is going to change things a lot. Um, but looking at the weather forecast it looks really good it's going to be hot and sunny uh, all three days consistent weather uh, teams will be, be able to go out get a base setup work on a base setup and find some speed um, but I think just looking at what's happened so far I mean yeah sure we've had you know nine nine riders on on the podium so far but I think what we've seen so far is that we're going to have uh, six riders who can uh, who will be fighting for the championship later in the, later in the in the season? We're not going to see any go, anyone go out and win ten races, but we we will see 
uh, sort of six riders constantly battling for podium places and for and for wins. And there'll be lots more riders on the podium. Um, there'll even be the, the the occasional random winner. But um, the, uh, to me, I think it's Mark Marquez, uh, Fabio Quattararo, um, Pekka Banyaya, Jorge Martin, uh, and the two Suzuki's, uh, Alex Rins and, and Juan Mir. I think they are going to be the main figures that this is all going to revolve around because they they have shown themselves so far to be consistent. The Yamaha still has a huge problem in that, the, the, you know, the lacking rear grip. That's something that they need to fix. Uh, and they're lacking rear grip and they can't make up uh, by sort of opening the gas later on to, to, and using some, some speed. Um, but if they can solve that, if they can get a little bit of rear grip, then that then that will make a big difference. And Quattararo has shown that he can be quick. Um, he was quick in Argentina. It's just that he started, he had a terrible starting position, and so lost too many positions in the start. He said basically he couldn't make any. He couldn't make uh, if you don't get away early, um, then you lose too many places and you never make them up again. Dave, I'm, I'm impressed that you can pick six riders because, as we just said, you know, the first three rounds have been just so hard to fathom. I mean, Johan Zarco goes from nowhere to the podium to, you know, having a disaster in, in Argentina. Fabio Quattararo has such a, a torrid result in Qatar that we start questioning whether Yamaha will be able to keep him under contract. Then pops up with a second place in Indonesia. Then, you know, in Argentina scores only one more point than he did in La Salle. So why are we not pushing the panic button again? It seems like there are these huge fluctuations pretty much, you know, any ride you want to talk, Miguel Oliveira, going from victory one week to 13th the next. It's, I think it's so hard to, to get a grasp, like I was saying earlier on, on MotoGP at the moment. And I'm just hoping there is some sort of semblance of normality coming soon. Uh, I don't know if it's if, whether you feel the same, but it's very disorientating not to have one kind of clear package. Well, I guess you can say Alicia Spargaro because he's winning the championship. But not to have one clear, um, you know, uh, identifiable marker there because we're so used to Mar Marquez or, you know, we had a hint that Fabio Quattararo would be able to assume that mantle. But then obviously, he he's like you, Dave, you're saying with the grip issues, Yamaha are having their own troubles. Uh, but I, I think that Quattararo, I mean, I think Quattararo is clearly the best Yamaha rider. Um, he's, he understands the bike. He knows how to make the bike fast. And I, but I think the bike is a problem. And yeah, unless uh, Yamaha can bring a whole lot more horsepower or, or find some rear grip, then he's gone, basically. Uh, there was a few times, I mean, we were once again ask, asking about his contracts and he was sort of saying, um, I'm saying nothing, which means, uh, or I, I think someone asked him, have you had any offers? And he said, I'm saying nothing, which is um, uh, uh, a PR speak for yes. Um, so yeah, it, I've had many. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's right. Yes, translation services on uh, available on request. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, and, and honestly, the, the Yamaha, it, like I said, if they can find some rear grip, uh, then Quattararo is going to be able to be uh, competitive. But the, to me, these are the riders who have shown themselves to be most most. Um, uh, consistent last year and this year, and I think they can put it together. Uh, Alex Rins, for example, I think Alex Rins seems to have made a step. He seems to be much calmer. You know, he's not throwing the thing away all the time. Um, he, he, he's much calmer. He's 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 
not taking the kind of risks that he was previously. Uh, and that, I think, is, is a really, really positive sign. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think this, it's making a lot more sense. I might just add one. Oh, sorry, I might just add one list. Sorry, one name to the list there, Dave, um, and that would maybe be Brad Binder. Is it too early to be talking of him as someone on uh, on that kind of list of guys that could could be up there fighting? I don't think he's going to win the championship, but I certainly think there's been enough in what we've seen from KTM so far and from Binder to suggest that he could well be in the running for maybe the top three in the championship. Um, you know, great ride from him again on Sunday. Um, coming through from uh, a bad qualifying 12th to 6th, I think it was. Another lap, he would have had Peko. He would have been 5th on a really tough weekend for, for KTM. I mean, Oliveira, you mentioned that, um, had a, a nightmare weekend, just couldn't find any rear grip. Um, and, and, and Brad had similar issues, but still managed to find the result. And, you know, uh, had he not had issues with his ride height device in Indonesia, he would have maybe been fighting for the podium there. Then he'd be leading the championship. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Binder's a name that we also need to add to... Um, a list of, of potential challengers. Yeah, it's a great shout, Neil. I mean, if you look at the World Championship standings, you can say, well, what is Alessia Spargaro doing up there? But then Binder's in second place. You know, if he hadn't made that mistake breaking, I think it was into turn seven um, on Saturday where he just nudged his gear lever uh, and misjudged a corner, then he would have qualified far better and made his race that much easier. Uh, qualifying, of course, was his big handicap in 2021, but he seems to have sorted that. So I think, you know, if the KTM can keep up their competitiveness, say in Austin, and then go to the slightly compact, shorter circuit in Jerez, then, you know, I think they're going to be real troublemakers on the scene. I've um, I've got two questions for you both uh, just before we head into our winners and losers section. The first one, uh, before we head for another ad break. Argentina, of course, came two weeks after Indonesia. Um, you're heading from one side of the world to the other. Uh, how do we think this Grand Prix was handled? Um, you know, there was obviously issues with the freight that was beyond people's control. Uh, Neil, you were on the ground and you were sending us messages in Indonesia that you thought that, that, you know, the asphalt was breaking up, that the track was looking very sketchy. There was lots of question marks over whether the Grand Prix would even go ahead if it hadn't have rained. Um, you know, we also, you were keeping us informed in Argentina saying, you know, there was a chance that the bikes and the equipment that was missing might not turn up and there might not be a Grand Prix. I mean, it just seems very, very sketchy. I thought Dorna, you know, there's only so much they can do about a broken airplane, of course. But, you know, to put Carmelo Espeleta in front of the cameras and, and give a justification and a reason for what, you know, what's happening. And to be able to say things like, you know, they're soon, well, next week they're celebrating 500 Grand Prix of working together with the MSMA and ERTA. Um and the FIM, to be able to say, look, we've had 499 Grand Prix, you know, largely without any kind of problem like this. I mean, it does kind of justify it to an extent. But was there a feeling, Neil, in the paddock that, you know, it was kind of a little bit like amateur hour again? It's like, you know, what's going on, guys? I think there was more um, understanding for this situation, just that um, that maybe world events have, have, have taken hold and um, have made freighting equipment around the world that bit more difficult um obviously the the COVID-19 pandemic uh, hasn't uh, hasn't helped that regard either um I thought you know that the the track had basically been the, the pit complex and stuff had been rebuilt you know the facilities were all in pretty good shape for a track that is used so infrequently you know the track surface was the track surface was actually quite good um we saw pretty fast lap times from the start so I think you know obviously 
Friday was 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 kind of crazy and uh, and strange. But I think um, how the rest of the GP was handled was was done quite well. I must say. Did you get any sleep? Uh, no, <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> I hear like down I was downtown um, Termas is probably akin to Jerez. You know, you don't want to be staying downtown Jerez. You know, on a, on a Grand Prix weekend in Spain. Yeah, Jerez 30 years ago, I think, is probably a, an apt comparison. Uh, I was in some of the Dorna lodgings, which was which was great, uh, because hotels and termites do not come cheap, <laughs> uh, I can tell you that. Um, but I was rooming with a man who snored pretty heavily, and I couldn't even really hear his snoring. Such was the such was the racket outside of revving engines. And uh, But I didn't think um, Dave went to Argentina. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. Th- th- thankfully, it wasn't Dave. Um, but yes, it was. Uh, it was quite, quite a racket, quite a, quite a, um, quite a bit of carry on. So, looking forward to my nice in a nice quiet part of Buenos Aires at the moment. So, yes, tonight's kip will be exemplary. Yeah, I, I don't think you can blame too much of this transport problem on Dorna uh, because they had. Two planes break down. I mean, uh, the, the reason that they were stuck with the second plane was because the first plane had already broken down, and then they tried to uh, get this. Uh, get, uh, they had to get this other plane, and that one broke down as well. That was the unusual circumstance. Um, I mean, if there is, I mean, if you were being really quite mean spirited about it, you could say the flight cases are all configured to go in 747s um and there are the, the 747s which are still flying are all quite older at least i think 15 20 years old um the ones fr- flying the freight from argentina to austin are much uh, they're about 20 years younger than the ones that we uh, were, were flying the stuff uh, from Indonesia to uh, to Argentina. Uh, so there's more of a chance of them getting there. But I think that um, it is F1 have reconfigured their flight cases. They've changed their flight cases so their flight cases fit in triple sevens. Triple sevens are the much newer airplanes. There's much, there's much more of them actually flying as well, uh, which means there's you know basically the, 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 there's more uh, companies which which fly this. It means you've got a greater choice of suppliers. And if one falls out, it's easier to to if one breaks down, it's easier to find another one to replace it. So. That I think is um, uh, it, it, that I think is, is making a difference. But then even F one have been suffering uh, transport problems as well. There was uh, a, a bunch of people who uh, had their stuff uh, arriving late in Australia for the season opener. So there's so much of this is beyond the out of the country. It, it, you know, if Vladimir Putin hadn't um, gone insane and invaded Ukraine and tried to kill everyone, then maybe uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, and you can see how much uh, attention Dave pays to F1 because they didn't actually start the season in Australia, Dave. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> all I know, all I know is they're in Australia. <laughs> well, the plane got really lost and just landed, you know, in the Middle East somewhere. So, uh, you know, that will do. We're going to fly our way into another ad break. But when we come back, we'll be in the last section of the show. No problem with our freight for the uh, winners and losers and the last big question to handle before we head to Austin. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, 
With over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the final section of the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and also Fly Racing. My second question for you, gentlemen, Mark Marquez, uh, we're recording this on a Monday evening. I guess we're waiting for a last minute confirmation that he's either going to fly to the USA or he's going to be out for the third race in succession. At the moment, he's 37 points behind in the championship. Like we said, there's still 450 left to win. Dave, you've counted Mark Steele as, you know, in the fight for the 2022 crown. Um does he need to be in Austin this weekend, considering this is also one of the traditional Marquez strongholds, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of up there a little bit with Saxon Ring in terms of, you know, his uh, prolific results in the past. Uh, what, are the, what are the opinions? Yeah, I mean, he's won every race here but one, and that was the uh, that was 2019, I think, when he when he fell off uh, through no fault of his own because of the because basically the Honda let him down. Um, I think he would really, really like to be there. I think he's going to be doing everything he can to actually be there because he knows that he can win if he can be in Austin. If he can ride, then he can win there. Um, the, the question is whether he can ride. But if he can't ride, um, yeah, it would be unfortunate, but not terrible. Um, it, it wouldn't rule him out of the championship because the, the, the point is, I mean, look at the championship standings. I think um the, the who, who is leading is uh oh wait if i could just pull them up 45, moment, 45 points 45, Dave. 45 points yeah 45 points for um uh for alicia spargaro i mean Mark's on 11 34 behind sorry i said 37 yeah. it's 34 yeah, Fabio Quartararo is on 35 points. I mean, Fabio Quartararo, you would expect to be in the championship hunt. Pekka Banyar is only on 12 points, you know? That's the the championship favourites. Even even Brad Binder on 38, if if Brad can really become uh, competitive this year, it, it it's not out of reach it's it it's quite easily doable for uh, for mark to to gain that if he can go on a decent if he can find that consistency you know winning uh winning when he can podiums when he can't you know or podiums down to fourth fifth position when he can't um then yeah i, I think absolutely he can he can still win this championship even if he can't turn up in austin I, I don't want to make this podcast old before it's published, still, because we could get news from Mark any moment now. Um, he hasn't been motocrossing, you know. We haven't seen any kind of social media activity that he's almost ready to go. But I mean, do you agree with Dave? I mean, is is Mark Marquez still is still part of this show? Oh, he's still part of the show for sure, a hundred percent. I think um, the reaction um, to this latest misfortune has has been. You know, largely positive after, um, obviously the first two or three days where he was uh, down in the doldrums. But I think, um, the fact that it's it's dissipated and is dissipating is, um, you know, he's been posting recovery photos and videos on uh, on his social media channels, which gives you the impression that he is he's focused right on the job at hand and getting back healthy as soon as possible. I have no idea whether he's going to be back this weekend or not um, because it's not really in his control, is it? It's not something that he can sort of wing. It's not like a, a kind of a, a busted shoulder that he could just say like, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll block out the pain. If he still has signs of double vision, then, you know, he's not going to be here. So um, it's not really down to him. 
let's let's see. But I absolutely agree with Dave. Even if he's not in Texas, I still wouldn't rule Mark out for the championship this year. Well, with all the joy of a Somkiat Chantra Park Ferme interview, we're going to go into our winners and losers section of the <laughs> uh, the Grand Prix of Argentina. Um, may that man always finish on the podium in Moto2 for the rest of the year. That's all I have to say. Uh, I'll go first. <laughs> My winner, I'm going to have to put um, Joan Mir, uh, basically because, you know, like Dave alluded to earlier on, uh, Suzuki is starting to find their groove and Mia so far even though he's not in the championship top three is the only rider to have double point scores from all three rounds and I think that is going to be the backbone possibly of a, a championship cam- a campaign like we saw from him in 2020 where he just chips away all the time uh, that kind of thudding weakness in 2021 of not being able to qualify very well seems to be a little bit addressed for 2022 and I just think, you know, like I mentioned in the podcast before, he's riding better than ever. And, you know, we will see a very strong Joanne as the season goes on. So he was my winner from from Argentina. Neil? Uh, I think that's a good shot. I think Joanne, for the, maybe the first time since, what, the first race of last year, we saw Joanne at the end of the race looking like Joanne Mir, um, coming from way back and taking chunks out of the guys ahead and looking like the strongest guy on track. I mean, when was the last time you could say in a MotoGP race that Joanne looked like the strongest rider on track? I mean, a long time ago. Um, so I think, obviously, uh, last year, uh, his machine issues and, and lack of development from Suzuki's side was a contributing factor to that. But I thought, yeah, absolutely, Joanne looked like the, the, the mirror of old at the end of that race. My big winner and from the weekend was Mark Marquez because uh, for some of the reasons we've just discussed um, because he didn't have to fly all those hours to Termas <laughs> yeah he was like you two lazy sods sitting at home uh, marveling at uh, marveling at us jet like the Denzians from afar um, yeah who had uh, basically um, revving GSXRs outside our windows uh, all through the night while we were trying to sleep um, aside from that also the fact that um, he's missed two races now maybe he's going to miss three but there's still no real um, person at the front of this championship that has given the impression that he's going to break clear I think if Fabio Quartararo had won the race on Sunday you would start to think okay he's looking ominous but Quadraro, Yamaha is beset by the issues that we saw in Qatar and it's going to be beset by those issues all year long so that's that's going to be difficult for him and you know Peko, Banyaya, Mir haven't exactly um, painted their uh, or, or tied their colours to the mast as you said earlier Ad uh, just yet so I still think um, you know Mark will be looking at uh, the weekend's action thinking yeah no need to really worry here. Dave? Um, I think my big winner is the MotoGP rulemakers. I mean, the fact that Aprilia won here, um, that Alessia Spargaro won here, uh, is testament to the change in rules. I remember, I mean, I quit my job in 2008 to do this full-time start in 2009. And, um, you know, there, I think there were 18 bikes on the grid in 2009. There were 17 in 2011. Uh, Suzuki had announced they'd been, they were withdrawing, so they would have been left with three manufacturers on the grid. There was only one Suzuki on the grid anyway. Um, the Suzuki was, it was all right, but it was never going to win a race. Um, there were only really four uh, four riders capable of winning week in, week out. Um, there were only really four 
for there were only really sort of you know five competitive bikes on the grid well there were there were four competitive bikes on the grid the two factory hondas the two factory uh yamahas and then there was casey stone on the ducati um that was it and the way that the rules have been transformed um Carmelo Espaleta and people inside Dorna have been really smart and really clever to actually, uh, they realized that the factories are, you know, factories are great, but it's the teams who run racing. The factories have got the choice to pull out a uh, pull out of racing. The teams, they, you know, racing is what they do. They had to build on the teams. And so they put this structure in place to support teams. Um, they created the, 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 the claim real teams, which became the open class, which then allowed them to introduce spec electronics uh, and then bringing in Michelin and um, uh, bringing more financial support for teams, a price cap on the on, on motorbikes, on the, on the price of, of leasing bikes. Um, there's now a system in place which gives everyone a really, really good chance. And again, the concessions, the introduction of concessions, um, that, that, that just gives everyone a chance to, to, to catch up. Um, uh, we talked about this on the Paddock Notes show as well. You know, it, the, the same thing happened with, with Suzuki. Suzuki came in, uh, but because they didn't have to spend an absolute boatload of money on on electronics, they could focus on on making the bike good. Um and KTM the same. They didn't have to spend all that money on uh, on electronics. They could they could concentrate on uh, the chassis, on the engine, on getting all of these details uh, right. And they had no experience in 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 MotoGP, whereas Suzuki already had experience in MotoGP. Aprilia again, like they've had lots of years in MotoGP that, that they didn't really have an idea about how to build a MotoGP bike. They've had to go forward and and, and do this. And the structure of the rules has allowed them to be competitive. So for me, the big winner is this. Now that we have all six manufacturers in MotoGP having won a race, the big winner is uh, the people who came up with these rules, people like Corrado Cecchinelli, uh, like Mike Webb, uh, Danny Aldrich, Car uh, Carmelo Espaleta, um, lots of people behind uh, behind the scenes, lots of people inside Erta who've sat around and talk, uh, talked about this and, and created this just amazing series. Now, it's encouraging to hear Dave set up his next stream of interviews. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'd love to keep getting all lovey-dovey on the podcast, but when there are winners, there are also losers. So, uh, Neil, I'm going to come to you. You know, who who was your kind of uh, sad man from the weekend or sad lady? Uh, there was quite a few, I guess, but um, I'm going to go for Luca Marini just because um, he, we're not really seeing the potential that we saw in preseason from Luca. He qualified in the front row, yes. That was a, a brilliant performance from him on Saturday. But um, yeah, still something missing on, on Sunday. Um, could only finish 11th and crucially uh, could only finish 11th behind his rookie teammate Marco Bezzecchi who had a fantastic weekend. Um, Bezzecchi was in, running, in the running uh, to be my big winner of the weekend because he was fantastic uh, throughout. Um, Marini, yeah, still looks like there's there's a lot more to come. Uh, a lot more to do to to get to the area that he needs to to be at. Was it um, Remy Gardner as well who said that he felt that Bezeki's adapted fastest out of all the rookies? I believe he it said was, that also yeah. on his debrief. Yeah, he, it just seems to be flowing better with the Ducati. 
yeah, let's uh, let's see how keep an eye on that that narrative as well. The championship within the championship for me, uh, the loser. I was tempted to pick Augusto Fernandez because you know Termes de Riondo is, is a long way away just to go for a race that lasts barely five seconds, um, and I can't help but feel that that was something of a dent in his championship aspirations, even though it's ridiculously early uh, in the season. It, it was a uh, it was a mistake. It was a big crash, and it was just unusual to see you know a Red Bull KTM Ayo machine spiraling out so early um, in such a, a graphic way. Um, but I'm actually going to plump for Andrea Davizioso because a rider of his reputation, a rider of his stature, to only have, I think, two points from the first three Grand Prix. Um, he had the glitch with a front ride height device in Argentina as well. It's it's looking a little bit like a, I don't know, a Michael Schumacher returns to Formula One for Dovi. I can't, I can't really understand how he's getting much satisfaction or enjoyment out of, of that position in that team. I can understand him wanting to come back to MotoGP to, you know, feel the adrenaline or to, you know, feel like he's part of a project. But, um, you know, at the moment, you know, the way it's working with him, I just uh, can't see how he, he's really loving life. Dave, your loser? Uh, my loser is Joan Zarco um, because, you know, he crashes out. He, he, I mean, Jean Zarco is a little bit in the same sort of situation as uh, as Jack Miller, where uh, he's on the hot seat. He is going to be one of the first riders to be replaced. Um, he's obviously fast, uh, you know. The, the the podiums prove that, uh, but he's just too prone to make mistakes, and he's too prone to you know mediocre results there are two he has too many bad days um and again this was another bad day and uh, you know his name his name on that team sheet is being written you know really in pencil every week you know that at some point unless he can really turn it around and really become consistent and competitive week in week out uh, uh then he's going to be sort of you know moved out and they'll find someone else especially we already have a fast french rider so there's there's, there's no need for joan zarco um he's clearly incredibly talented it's just that he's not consistent and and this was once again demonstration of why he wasn't consistent Guys, we're just going to round off this uh, edition of the Paddock Pass podcast with our predictions for Austin. Uh, a matter of days, we'll be in the paddock there in Texas. Uh, Mark Marquez may or may not be racing. If he's not, then is there one kind of clear rider? I mean, is it going to be a Ducati track? Um, you know, what What are you kind of, who's, uh, what's your favorite? Neil, you go first. Well, it's entirely dependent on the news, whether Mark will be there or not. If he's there, then it's him. If he's not there, I guess you have to go off last year's form. Um, Quattararo was really good in second place, um, so maybe him. But then, you know, Yamaha has stood still while the other bikes have taken steps forward. Um, maybe Jorge Martin, who is up fighting uh, for the podium in his uh, first visit to Austin on a MotoGP machine, uh, could be uh, another guy that could be challenging at the front. Pekka Banyan as well. Dave? Um, well, yeah, obviously, Mark Marcus is going to win if he's there. And if he doesn't win, then it'll be a Suzuki 1-2. I think uh, Neil makes a good point about Quattararo. Quattararo is fast around this circuit um, and he's strong there. But the Suzukis are on a roll. They've, they've figured it out. He's been They've been quick around there before. Rins has had a podium there. Um, I think that uh, the... I really think that um, this could be where they make a bit of a breakthrough and, and we start to, they start to sort of, you know, get a grip on the championship. 
Yeah, I think um, Alex Rins you know, profited from Mark Marcus's glitch with the Honda to take victory ahead of Valentino Rossi a couple of years ago. So he's got good previous history there. But uh, we'll be there, all three of us, of course. Um, Steve's, you know, on World Superbike duty. That's why he's not joining us uh, this evening. But we'll be producing note shows from Cotta each evening, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, we might be actually hanging out in a bar if anybody wants to come and uh, talk bench race with us a little bit, talk MotoGP. We'll be publishing some more details of that on Twitter if we can make it happen. Otherwise, join us on Patreon, of course, for those special notes packages or send us a, a question on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. We're always happy to delve into any readers' questions or listeners' questions, I should say. Other than that, I'd like to thank uh, Renthal Street again and also Fly Racing for backing the podcast. David, safe trip. I'll see you over there in the USA. You as well, Neil. Uh, don't go too crazy on the steak. Uh, keep some room for those large American portions. And uh, thanks for listening, too guys. Late for that ad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next week. I just started recording. I shall start recording. Can we record the call as well? I shall start recording the call. Recording. Start recording. Can we record the call as well? Recording the call. Ready, guys?